We're studying the book of Matthew. Uh, We started a number of months ago looking at and thinking through what is it that this eyewitness testimony is going to give us concerning the person of Jesus. If there's been one word that sort of hangs over all of Matthew so far, just a, a kind of thematic way that he writes, the idea is fulfillment. How does Jesus fit into all of the puzzle pieces of the Old Testament? And we're going to look at one of those key ways now as we read the end of Matthew chapter 9. We are at a bit of a transition period. So none of the chapters existed when Matthew wrote this account. Uh, They were added in helpfully later. But despite the fact that they weren't there, I do think that Matthew writes in themes. He writes in little sections. We came through one of the most important sections in Matthew, Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And then there was a summary statement at the end of chapter 7, which we'll look at in a minute. And then it brought us into this other little section of chapter 8 and 9, where Jesus went from communicating merely through his teaching, his powerful teaching, to walking powerfully with the people who he comes in contact with. So chapters 8 and 9 have been focused on the power of Jesus to heal over all creation. And now we're going to see something take place at the end of Matthew chapter 9, going into the beginning of 10 where the question will be, what about the ministry of Jesus will be passed on and is transferable to those who follow him? So Matthew is going to bring into view the ministry of Jesus as it relates to those who he is sending. And we ought to pay careful attention, of course, because through the sending of laborers, generation after generation after generation after generation, I don't know how many generations we have to put in there. We sit here today. The ongoing ministry of Jesus through those who follow him is what builds the church. So you are a recipient of the ministry of Jesus that you're going to see now as we we turn the page from chapter 9 to chapter 10, the disciples becoming apostles. So I'm going to read now, starting in the 35th verse of Matthew chapter 9. I'm just going to go through the first four verses of Matthew 10. And then we're going to come back next week to a sort of part two on this ministry of those who are sent. But let's look together, end of Matthew 9, beginning of chapter 10. Matthew writes this, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds... He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. I want to pray just for a moment. God, thank you for speaking. 
You've not remained far off nor hidden, but you've revealed the mystery of your goodness and holiness and perfection and given us righteousness in the person of your Son. So I ask now that you would do what we can't do for ourselves, and that is to get at the deepest parts of our hearts and transform us one degree of glory to the next into the image of Jesus. I pray for those who are prospering and thriving and joyful this morning that they would find the hand of the giver of those good things. I pray as well for the suffering, the doubting, the hurting, that they would be brought near. And I ask that these words would, would pierce us. We, we would love to live into our confession this morning. So Spirit of God, please give us that gift. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. There are a few passages in the Bible that bring to mind certain things for me. I'm sure you have this as well. There's a Bible verse you memorized when you were a kid or something your grandmother always used to pray or some sign that you saw somewhere. Well, the end of Matthew chapter 9 is one of those such verses for me, mainly because at a certain point in my life, I was a part of teams that were going around the country attempting to stir up laborers for the mission harvest field. And this was one of them, this end of Matthew chapter 9. It's especially significant because in that same group going to do that was my now wife, Sarah, and we were assigned the same task, although we were going to be sent off to different places. We were assigned the task of memorizing what was going to be snippets of Scripture from the beginning of Genesis through Revelation to show the the sending nature of God, His heart for the nations. And our task was to memorize these passages of Scripture and then deliver them in what was called a dramatic scripture reading. So we'd go into churches and everyone would gather and there'd be some songs and a skit. And then at the right time, Sarah would pop up or I would pop up. We were on different teams. And very dramatically, we would read out these passages of scripture. And there came a point in the midst of these, I'm not going to give you the whole show. Uh, Maybe one day we'll do a reenactment. Maybe we could tag team it together as a husband and wife or something. Uh, Because it was Bible study, but we got to know one another well. And then you get married. That's how that worked. But there was a moment in the midst of that as we transitioned and turned the page from the Old Testament heart of God for the nations to quoting this, except we do it, you know, dramatically, not the whole thing, but just imagine you're over to the side and you're very pensive and thoughtful about it, having come through the Old Testament. And then you say, but when he saw, you know what I mean? Or like, you know, whatever it is, some of you are more dramatic than others. And because I memorized it in such a way at a moment and significant in my life, This section of Scripture has been dear to me. And I believe that it teaches us something concerning the person of Jesus. I specifically want to point out how Matthew is using this imagery, summarizing the first the teaching ministry of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, second, his healing and power ministry in the miracles, and he summarizes it with imagery. He borrows rich Old Testament imagery to show us what Jesus is like. And I want to show this because some of the other gospel writers do this much more, I would say, much more um, latently. It's out there. It's full of on-the-nose kind of language. So, for instance, John's gospel is always saying saying things like this. Uh, He has Jesus painted as saying, I am the bread of life. 
I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the gate. And then very famously, John's gospel has Jesus fulfilling and saying, I am the good shepherd. So when you think of those statements, you might think of John. But what I want to point out is that Matthew is just as illustrative. He's just a little more subtle. And you can tell the same story with different degrees of subtlety. So if you were going to paint a painting and someone said, I want it to have, a, have patriotic themes, one person might draw an eagle riding a tank with a tattooed American flag on the front, right? And they'd say, this is very patriotic. It's right on the nose, straight in your face. That's a, maybe John's gospel is Jesus just comes out and says, I am the good shepherd. But you could just as easily paint a painting that showed themes of hope or capitalism or just some images of red and blues and a flag waving over a school in a background or something. And the person might say, no, no, I want to communicate that, but it's a little bit more under the surface. And I believe that Matthew's writing in this place, if we're not paying real close attention, could be under the surface. And what I want to do is I want to open up the way that Matthew, I believe, presents Jesus as the good shepherd. This is an I am statement from Matthew, and I want us to walk through and to see how that works. So in order to get at this I am statement, I want to read from Ezekiel 34. Now, this might be why it's sort of under the surface and hidden, because many of us are not Ezekiel scholars. But Matthew, of all the gospel writers, makes great use. This is probably the the book that was written most closely identified with the Jewish people. Their scripture at the time would have been the Old Testament. And this is one of those moments where knowing, we would call the First Testament, the foundational testament, knowing it well brings color to the New Testament. And I believe that what Matthew was doing to summarize Jesus and to put him in a particular light is to pull from rich Old Testament imagery from Ezekiel chapter 34. So let's go there and note this prophecy that came to Ezekiel hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. It says this in the first six verses, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness, You have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. This is a grave critique, calling the people of God sheep and noting that there is none to care for them. In fact, those who are given to care have not cared for them, but instead have taken from them 
they have, forgive me, fleeced them. And so now we move down a little further in Ezekiel and we see what does God say in response? What's the promise not yet fulfilled in Ezekiel, but what's the promise? This is verse 11 of Ezekiel 34. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. They shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. The Lord God declares that all that has been lacking to cause the scattering in the evil, negligent shepherds will be eventually fulfilled by God Himself taking on the persona of a good shepherd who will feed and seek and bring back and bind up and strengthen. And then He even feeds, He has something for the fat and strong too. I love how the This section of verse 16 says, The fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them, and he basically says, with a knuckle sandwich. Injustice. The good shepherd not only seeks and binds up and feeds and strengthens, but he defends. So I believe that this is what Matthew is doing for us. Over and over again, from the very beginning, he's used the word fulfillment. He has showed how the story of redemption from the very beginning of time has all of these holes, these promised holes that would eventually be fulfilled. So I'm not sure, have you ever been doing a puzzle and you get down to the end and it's just a clear blue sky with nothing to tell you what to look for? You just think, I'm going to shove random pieces here for a while. And then the good puzzle doers amongst us learn to see the subtleties. They learn to look for the hints that a piece might fulfill the broken spot or the open spot in the puzzle. And so you tell the person, sometimes if you're doing it with a partner, one person will be describing the opening because you have a piece and you're like, I have a blue here piece here. What's the opening like? What, What do we need to be looking for? And the person says, well, it's got two pokey parts on one side, a little bit of a slanty thing and a whoopty woo on the side, however you describe them. I don't know what you do. And then slowly the person who's looking over here says, whoa, I got a slant right here and a whoopy woo. I got a side right here and two. And then the joy comes by putting the piece over and you see how it fills in and fulfills the emptiness or the promise that's been there yet to be fulfilled. And so here's what I want to do. 
I want to line up the person and ministry of Jesus and look to see whether or not his activity as given to us by Matthew is in fact shepherding activity. And I'm going to give you six activities of Jesus that I believe are going to be a moment of joy for us as we say, hold on, does this fit? And we're going to pick it up and we're going to throw it down over the top of Ezekiel to realize that in the person of Jesus, all that was promised is being fulfilled. So here's the six little, if I'm describing it, like, well, what's the hole like? This is what we're asking first. What's the spot like? Well, it would be a shepherd who goes. So going will be an activity we're going to look for. One who teaches, one who preaches, one who heals, one who sees, and one who sends. So that's six things. Going, teaching, preaching, healing, seeing, sending. Solid gerunds here for us to look into. And I'm going to try to get through these things quickly. I know there's six of them, and I've, been, I've had a lack of self-awareness in the past, so uh, pray with me. I think we can get through these quick, quickly. But we're going to try to look for this, and we're going to say as we examine Jesus, how does he fit? So the first thing that I want to note is this idea of going. Remember, what did, what did the Lord God say? He said, I myself will go and search and seek. I will go to them. This passage we just read, in verse 35, says that Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. He has made a ministry of being itinerant, on the move. Isn't the entirety of the gospel itself about God come down? Isn't Jesus introduced as the one who was born of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? God himself, who took on human flesh, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but came to us. There's these little words that are often easy to overlook. And sometimes when we're reading our Bible, it's a good thing. Familiarity is a good thing when you're reading the text of Scripture. But it can also be a dangerous thing. And if you just look back and count, even in this one chapter, in chapter 9, and then go back to 8, I can count dozens of moments when Matthew is making the point again and again and again. What was Jesus like in his ministry? Well, he was one who went. He went where the need was. And you can imagine that this is necessary for a shepherd because sheep don't know where they're going. Sheep easily get lost and entrenched. I saw a little video one time of a sheep that was stuck in a trench. These guys take this great effort to get him out of there. And then he's all scared and he runs off and two seconds later jumps back into the exact same trench. You have to go to where the lost sheep are. Jesus could have, because he was God after all, he could have gone down, sat in one field, got a comfortable chair, and said, look, I'm the bread of the world. I'm the light here. I got everything you need. If you want it, come and get it. But what would have happened if he had done such a thing is that we would have been lost forever. There is a demonstrated ministry of going and seeking and searching in the life of Jesus. In fact, you could describe the entirety of his purpose in coming is to come, and he did it himself. He said, I have come to seek and save the lost. Well, how does that match up, you might say? How does this image of Jesus fit on the promises of the good shepherd? Well, it fits pretty well. This teaches us that a good shepherd, someone who cares and sees lostness, will be one who moves toward need. 
And we might summarize it in such a statement as this. We love because he first loved us. We are sheep who need shepherding. And in Jesus, we have one who goes. You cannot read this gospel without seeing over and over again. And then Jesus went here, and then he went here, and then he left went there, and then he went to that city, and then he went to this place. And then he set his face toward Jerusalem. And as he was going, I'm grateful for the going ministry of Jesus who needed to seek out lost people like me. Second, I said we should look for teaching. The imagery here, the idea of being fed, does Jesus teach? Well, Matthew tells us that when he went through all the cities and villages, he was teaching in the synagogues. There's a great ministry of teaching in the life of Jesus. I'm just going to summarize. How did people experience his teaching? Well, at the end of chapter 7, we find that Matthew records for us this. It says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You know what's interesting about that? The sheep were surprised. They've been starving for so long that they can't believe they're being taught substantively. And what does Ezekiel say? Ezekiel says, well, look, they're going to have some shepherds, but they just starve them. They don't give them anything. No instruction, no care. They're not patient with them. And then Jesus comes And he not only seeks out the sheep, but in the midst of their dumbness, is that even a word? That sounds dumb. In the midst of their stupidity, he patiently teaches. Teaching in and of itself is an unbelievable shepherding ministry. To take the heart and the mind of someone who, in other words, is lost through an labyrinth of of disparate sort of chaotic ideas... And to come into someone and to patiently say, here's what we're going to do. You know that idea you have over here? Let's combine it to this one into something new and beautiful so that eventually you understand. Jesus has a ministry of teaching. This is not the only place. We found whole chapters in the past already that Matthew has pointed out that Jesus is not like the other leaders who are supposed to be shepherds. He actually feeds the people with truth and knowledge. And he's going to continue on as a great teacher as well. We're not even into the part of Matthew yet where Jesus starts getting really creative as a teacher. Where he really starts saying, hey, what do you think about coins? What do you think about fish? Have you ever considered this? And he tells a long story about kings and grooms and vineyards and workers. Jesus is a fantastic teacher. When you listen to him, Your soul will be fed. And those who heard him began to notice, wait, this is not like our former leaders. I want to make this point as well. And you might say to yourself, why did you say two things? Aren't teaching and proclaiming or teaching and preaching basically the same thing? Verse 35 says that he taught in the synagogues and he proclaimed the gospel. And I want to make a point that I do think that they are somewhat different. Teaching is often done calmly. Someone once said the difference between teaching and preaching is plain. Teaching is explanation. Preaching or proclaiming is exclamation. You see the point there? You see the idea there? Explanation versus exclamation. 
Matthew makes a point to say that Jesus did not only teach, but he often proclaimed. It could be that I am often a passionate person. I see possibilities and hope and good things a lot. And I like to, I like to talk about my favorite and the biggest. And did you see this? So it could be very self-interested of me, but I just for a moment want to say I'm, how delighted I am at this picture of Jesus. Because maybe it's the artwork that makes Jesus' face perfectly pimple-free and his eyes just, you know what I'm saying, like totally unaffected. A lot of times we get an idea of Jesus and that holiness means that he is unaffected by the realness or the emotions of life. But Matthew says that he went proclaiming. That's the same word as preaching. It's going to be used through the rest. When the apostle Paul stands up to proclaim, kiraso, the Greek word, the idea is to, to cry out. That's the word that's being used here. And I love to think of Jesus understanding the, the depth of his love and his compassion and his care and his commitment to truth and holiness, sometimes actually proclaiming. So I want to give you an example. One of the most well-known, we're going to get to it in a, in a chapter or so, one of the most well-known invitations of Jesus is to come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Now, if you imagine that in a teaching context, Jesus sitting in a comfortable marble chair like Socrates, slowly thinking, ah, yes, he says, come to me if you're weary or heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Doesn't that seem just very calm? But what if he's proclaiming? What if he reaches down into the soul of his being, full of all of the vigor of life, life itself embodied in a man? What if he sees the exhaustion of those who have crawled in to listen to him? What if he knows the striving of their soul? What if he knows how sick and tired they are of being sinned against? What if they know how exhausting it is to try to overcome and to not sin? What if he sees that they're still on the treadmill of self-effort and self-righteousness? And in his desire to love them, he goes to them and he pleads with them and he says, why are you remaining far off? Come to me. What if he's crying out in the byways and highways and he's looking over the windows on the side of the temple and he's saying, you, come in. Come to me. Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Do you have a huge burden on your back? Why are you carrying it? Come in and I will give you rest. I don't know why it's hard to picture Jesus like that. But we're told that he proclaimed the kingdom. Can you picture Jesus saying, I'm going to a place to prepare a room for you. It's a house, a big house. Is that how you see Jesus? Or do you think he might even get excited thinking about the glories of heaven? Maybe he assures them and says, I want you to know I'm preparing a place for you. It's amazing. It's got the best gold. There's marble everywhere. The house, it's huge. I'm talking mansion on mansion on mansion. You could sing songs about this house. Jesus proclaimed the goodness of the kingdom. It's a good reminder that it doesn't help someone to 
only give them the didactic truth over and over and over again. Help their heart to sing in it. Help them to see why it's good. Why they'd say to themselves, wait a minute, if I reject this, I'm really giving up on something. Jesus is someone who goes and he's someone who teaches. But he said that he would strengthen the weak. You know what proclaiming like that does? It breathes courage into people. It shows them there's something worth hoping for. It shows them that things matter. That the apathy that we're often so content with and the tiredness of life can be severed. There's something to proclaim. We also see, what are those, what's the promise of Ezekiel? That he would heal the injured. He would heal the injured. Well, Jesus, we're told by Matthew, he went through all these places teaching and proclaiming, and he healed every disease and every affliction. Matthew 9, or 8 and 9, is full of these displays of power, these moments when Jesus pulls open the blinds that have been over humanity and over reality, and he shows that there is power coming through, that heaven itself has invaded and is now present in this earthly realm. And more than just being little displays of power to give validity to his message, which is true, I think that the apostles are going to have the same ministry, those displays of power not only give validity to his message, but they're down payments of future glory. Moments of healing speak to those who feel like there might not be any glory left in the world. There's a coming day when the blinds will be thrown open And healing will no longer even be necessary because of the deep, full health that will exist through all things. Jesus goes to seek and save the lost. He feeds them with truth. He gives them strength when they're weak through the courage of proclaiming goodness. He heals them by His power. And then this little word, it says that he sees them. You know, a shepherd needs to know well the condition of his flock. Matthew says that he saw the crowds. An amazing phrase. I think one great fear of everyone's soul is to be completely unseen, unnoticed, neglected. Some people actively seek out to be disliked or to make a big scene because at least they're being acknowledged. So what does it mean that the shepherd has come and he sees? The sheep that is far lost on the back of the hill, in the crevice, not lost, not unseen, not forsaken. This is the message of Matthew. Jesus is the kind of shepherd that there is not one thing that you are experiencing right now that he does not see. He knows your difficulty. He knows your worries, your doubts. He knows your tiredness. He knows your rejoicing, your desires. He knows your love for others. He knows your temptations. He sees. Jesus sees. And then more than that, This shepherd who sees and gathers and understands, he not only sees, but he sees with compassion. 
You see, if I just told you, you know, God sees, it could come off very like finger wagging. And there's a sense where we should walk reverently before God because he sees. Our whole life is before his image. But he not only sees, he sees with compassion. Jesus created all things. He is the very substance of life, order, goodness, holiness. He comes down to the earth and he walks on dusty trails and sees every possible malady of the human condition. He sees glory, image-bearing, glorious image-bearing human beings designed to fellowship with God, wallowing in the muck of a lost field. And he sees that perfectly. But how does he see? With derision? With condemnation? With guilt-infused disappointment? No, with compassion. He does not seek the lost in order to shame them. He does not find the strayed in order to shun them. He seeks to find. He goes after the strays to bring back. He shows compassion. And we ought to be like this too. Jesus gives this kind of sight to those who come to know him. One of the great gifts, in fact, salvation itself, as described in the Bible, as being able to see. One of the greatest difficulties is that we often do not even see our own lostness. But the Spirit of God, because we are bound to Jesus, shows us our need. And then the rest of the New Testament is going to tell us, when you see as well, be like Jesus who has compassion. The Apostle Paul, who saw and dealt with every kind of craziness of sin. Sometimes we're afraid to dive into the worst of things because we think, well, the Bible doesn't really know what this is like. Scripture is full of the most insane chaos of sin you could imagine. In Galatians, Paul's dealing with one of these things, and he says, you know, if you find someone, if you find someone who has been caught in in sin, restore them with what? Well, Ezekiel 34 says that the shepherds were ruling with harshness and fierceness. But because we're followers of Jesus, Galatians says, when someone's caught in sin, restore them with gentleness. Gentleness. The book of Jude says, there's going to be people who doubt amongst you. You know that, right? We're a community of faith, but then, I mean, we also doubt. We believe, but help our unbelief. How should you deal with people like that? Mercifully. The good news of the gospel is this. You are not only seen by a good shepherd, but a good shepherd who loves the sheep, who cares for them, and comes with compassion. We also see that Jesus sends people to care for lost sheep. It tells us at the end of Matthew 9 that he says to his disciples, there's a harvest that is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into his harvest. A good shepherd provides for the future of his sheep. And what we see beginning to be unfolded for us here 
is that Jesus is going to go to the cross to absorb the wrath and penalty for sin. He's going to resurrect to newness of life to take care of our enmity with God. And then he is going to, through the ministry of the apostles and them passing on the faith to the next generation and the generation and the generation after that, he's going to care for his church down through the ages. Jesus' shepherding does not stop when his physical ministry ends. He leaves those who are entrusted with the gospel and says, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into his harvest. There's a couple things to note here. One is the hope of Jesus. He says the harvest is plentiful. I think that's hard to believe for us many times. But the harvest is plentiful. The need is great. But I want you to know, it doesn't say just like the field is plentiful or the chaos is plentiful, the harvest. Jesus anticipates that there will be a great coming in of those who are lost. I love the certainty of Ezekiel. Imagine if the prophecy was this, I, the Lord God, will try my best to shepherd my people. I will search, but I'm not promising anything. I will try to rescue. I'll try to feed. No, there's a certainty here. There is a harvest. God is on a rescue mission. And not a small one. A great rescue mission. The harvest is plentiful, Jesus says. He has a confidence that matches Ezekiel 34, which says, no, no, I will seek the lost. And I will bring them back. And I will bind up. And I will strengthen. And I will feed. We ought to look at the fallenness of the world and not with derision or disappointment or with laughter or disdain for how stupid all these people who don't get it are, but instead with compassionate certainty, say, God, do what you've promised to do. I'm also very grateful, and we can't get this sideways, I'm grateful that there is a Lord of the harvest. You are not the Lord of the harvest. I am not the Lord of the harvest. Four Oaks Midtown is not the Lord of the harvest. Any denomination of the church is not the Lord of the harvest. There is a Lord of the harvest, and results and fruit are up to him. In Corinthians, we'll get language like this. The Apostle Paul, who's pretty fruitful, says, Some of you are confused. You think I'm the Lord of the harvest. I'm not. I'm just planting some seeds, and then someone else comes and waters. But it's God who gives the growth. I had a moment where I was very grateful to not be Lord of the harvest. When I was early in student ministry, working at a church, I got a buzz on my little phone. Remember phone systems? Remember that? Like physical phones that were wired? So mine buzzed. And the person at the front said, "Uh, there's a gentleman here with his daughter. He seems very upset and adamant that he needs to come and talk to you. I was like, okay. So this guy comes through my door, and he's extremely urgent, very direct, bold to the point of sort of mean. And he says, I left my daughter in the parking lot, but I'm going to send her in here. And you're going to save her. She's rebellious. She's gone sideways. She won't listen to us. She's getting in all kinds of trouble. She's going to shipwreck her life. And I came to the preacher because you're going to save her. And I tried to explain to him in the moment, um, I, I can't do that kind of stuff. Like I'll plant some seeds or I'll have to pray for her. And he wouldn't have any of it. He's just like, I'm sending her in. So he left. And a girl came in who was 
mostly browbeaten and I'm sure very rebellious and probably had her own issues. But I listened to her and prayed for her and asked her questions. And in the midst of praying for her, I didn't use these exact words, but I had a feeling like this. God, thank you for that I am not in charge of saving someone. I mean, how could I go to bed that night? It just would not have been the case. And so I prayed for her and tried to encourage and got contact information and tried to tell this dad that I understood his concerns, but he needed to trust. What I really wanted to say is, is you know, it's flattering. I think sometimes we want to be the Lord of the harvest. It's a good feeling to be the rescue champion of the world. But I'm grateful in these moments. You know, you might say like, I'm not the Lord of the harvest. I'm flattered you thought I was. But Jesus says, here's the thing. There are laborers, workers, just faithful people who will be sent out. But there is a Lord of the harvest and he both sends and he brings in the crop. And then as we turn to chapter 10, just briefly, and we're going to have a part two to consider what happens when they go out. Matthew does something very obvious, maybe a little subtle. Jesus calls his disciples, their followers, their learners. And then in the next verse, in verse two, he calls them apostles. This transition from disciple to apostle simply means they've now been sent. They've been given authority and they've been sent. Apostle means the sent ones. And here's an example of Jesus taking care of the sheep. He's shepherding through the ongoing ministry of the apostles. I love this list of apostles because in the midst of this list, there are brash, proud, often erring apostles. There are fearful, quiet Saddened apostles. I love even more. Do you know that nearly half this list, six of this list of apostles, we know almost nothing about? They simply proclaimed the gospel, pointed to Jesus, and then died and were only remembered by their names. I just want to say, I mean, say their name Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew. Like, Bartholomew, what were you like? Thank you for being faithful to Jesus. But not big, bright lights. There's James, not that one, the other one, of Haphius and Thaddeus. I love that even Matthew says, Simon, not Peter. You know, he's like, Simon the Zealot, not the one who I already mentioned was Simon the Peter. You can almost imagine, say a Christian comes in and he's in their town and they're like, did you know one of the apostles is coming tomorrow to teach? They're going to bring a letter with them. Who is it? Simon, the person says, Peter? No, the other one. Oh, I don't really know much about them. They're just laborers. So one of the great ways that the good shepherd fits the fulfillment of the Old Testament is that he has come to seek and save the lost. He provides and feeds and heals and binds up and then he sends forth those who would continue his ministry and his work amongst the sheep. I want to pray for us that we see like Jesus saw. I think if I am honest, I think I see more than I see. Sometimes my great discernment may be mere cynicism. 
And even when I see rightly, I'm not always getting to the point of compassion. So I want to pray that we have compassion. And I want to pray, like Jesus tells us to pray, that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers out. Let's pray together.